Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Uh, We've done this from mid-August until election. We were in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the front side of that, which is the Beatitudes. Then we transitioned into a two-week joint series with Pastor DeMarcus and Convergence Church over unity, which was awesome. Uh, I do find it kind of interesting that the, the time of year that we decided, hey, let's gather with another church was also the time that the COVID numbers were the highest. So that first week, place packed out, and then I think everyone freaked out. Like, we... We don't have that many people every week, so you can come back if you're scared of that. That, that was a lot of people, but that was still awesome. Uh, but right now what we find, though, is we've got a gap between uh, now and Advent, when we teach kind of leading into uh, Christmas. And, and I don't mind that, though, because uh, even though we have that gap, what we want to do is just press further into the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, how do you walk away from Jesus' first sermon? Uh, it's kind of the best place to be. Uh, So I'm not mad about staying there. But in order to kind of uh, understand this next part of it, we're going to have to catch our bearings again, just a little bit of of what's happening in the sermon, understand what Jesus is transitioning to. To to do that, there there was a 400-year period between the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament of of just complete silence. Uh, And then Jesus walks onto the scene. He arrives And he begins teaching, and in his first public sermon, after 400 years of silence, Jesus begins to speak to recalibrate all the things about faith that were extremely off, namely the way that people were following God at the time, and the way that the religious leaders were teaching other people how to follow God at the time. So he was reframing Christianity and and faith right before their eyes, And and he opens that by starting in a very basic way. He starts preaching on how humanity flourishes, which is him speaking authoritatively into a hot-button issue uh, that that we even talk about in our culture right now. 2,000 years later, he's talking about where does happiness come from while also speaking into the character that we are called into if we follow him. Interestingly enough, uh, Jesus' message is this, flourishing and the calling of a Christian are not at odds with each other. They actually work together. We can tend to believe that God just wants to steal my joy and I'll be happier if I get to do my own thing. But Jesus comes onto the scene and says, no, that's not actually true. Follow me and I will walk you into a life of flourishing that you will not find on your own. And then Jesus transitions right after that uh, from the calling and where flourishing comes from into the purpose of following him for, for believers or the church. These were the salt and light texts that direct the church to be the light of the world to show them Christ's light, to help out a world that's broken and, and needs him. And then he flowed into the next part that was his relationship with the Old Testament law, specifically all the, the thou shalt and thou shalt nots found in the Old Testament. He was straightening out some stuff there. And he said that I have come to, accom- or to uh, fulfill and accomplish the Old Testament. Uh, I have come not to throw away the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it for you and fulfill all the ways that you follow short in your obedience. I have come uh, to, to, to step into that and help out the ways that you fall short. Here's what we see throughout history. And then if we're honest, this is what we see in our lives as well. Over and over and over again, we know what is right in the eyes of God. Whether we can define that as his law or not, we know what's right. We just choose not to do it. 
Uh, we decide that we would rather do our own thing, that we would rather follow our own way. So, so really, uh, willingly, we are all, by nature, uh, lawbreakers who willingly break the, the law of God and disobey it, uh, often trying to recreate what is right in light of what we want in the moment. Well, this seems right to me. If that news sounds kind of like depressing or off, it's, it's because it is. But then the good news is that this, Jesus came down from heaven not to save perfect people, but to save sinners. Uh, he said it this way, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for uh, the, the sick. So even in our rebellion or our lawlessness, Christ moved towards us in love, and he supplies the perfect obedience that you and I just seem to fall short with all the time. So our resume of obedience is, is tattered and and torn as coffee stains on it doesn't look so hot so jesus comes and he exchanges his perfect resume in place for ours for all who believe in him and all who follow him this is the idea that is central to the core of the gospel Ho hopefully we understand this that's why it's called good news it's not what you do that saves you but it's what christ has done for you that saves you believing in that and walking in light of that that is what salvation looks like now, even though Jesus came to fulfill the law, to complete it, he said in the Sermon on the Mount that we do not get to disregard it. I came to fulfill that you couldn't, but, but don't for a second think that obedience doesn't matter anymore. Uh, I've obeyed perfectly where you haven't. Please don't think obedience is now inconsequential. Though. The core of Christianity is to do what? To follow Jesus. So if we are going to follow Jesus, then our obedience, it does matter. It's just not what saves us. What we'll find in the next several uh, texts in the Sermon on the Mount will be there this week and maybe a, a couple more times later is Jesus is going to speak into some key areas that we've kind of missed the point on what obedience looks like. And further, he's going to uh, show not only how we've missed the point, uh, but, but how we have kind of taken all the laws and the thou shalts and thou shalt nots in the Old Testament, and, and we've started trying to follow the letter of the law while we've kind of missed the spirit of the law. What does that mean? We're more worried about external behaviors than we are about why a law might be there and what it's meant to do in our heart. Jesus in these texts is going to kind of aggressively move towards your heart, though, and, and ask for uh, permission in these texts to kind of move and mold some things. Jonathan Pennington says this uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's helpful when we look at external behavior more than the heart. He says, true righteousness cannot be construed as mere uh, obedience. It must be understood as, as wholeness. That quote is, is, is helpful. And we, what we do is we see Jesus kind of speak in that, like, I'm trying to change the, the, the whole you. Jesus said this at the end of the text over the law as well. He said that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees to be a follower. Now, that statement didn't mean that you need to work harder than the Pharisees to be good. It meant that you couldn't have a faith that was only skin deep like theirs, a faith that didn't penetrate to the core of who you are, that only uh, dealt with a couple external behavior issues and be a follower of him. The heart is an issue that Jesus aggressively moves towards out of his goodness and kindness. It's good news for you and I that Jesus wants to pursue our hearts and wants to move some stuff around in them. So in these texts, he'll talk about anger. That's where we're at today. Uh, he'll talk about lust, divorce, 
uh, promises, retaliation, and loving our enemies. Uh, I pray that in these areas as we hear them that we'll be okay with Christ confronting a couple of things. Because if we're going to be honest, when we hear some things, there's going to be some things in here that we're going, like, I'd rather you leave that alone. Uh, but, but the hope is that we would trust Jesus to be good and wrestle with these things well. The, the appropriate question that may be helpful before we dive into the text today, though, is, is simply this. Does Jesus, does Christ have access to your heart? Is your faith a, a, a modeling of external behavior modification? Is it just, oh, well, I won't do this and I will do this, maybe begrudgingly? Or is, is Jesus rearranging the furniture in your heart? Does he have the, the ability and, and the authority uh, to, to kind of change and mold some things? Because here's the reality, he wants to. And, and if you trust him, you want him to as well. So here's the text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus speaking, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother uh, will be liable. But I say that everyone who is angry will, with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Each and every one of these texts, the next ones that follow, are, are going to open with a general formula. Jesus will say, you've heard it said... Uh, which is his way of saying, well, the generally taught or, or way of understanding an issue has been this. Uh, but then I'll kind of jump off on that issue and, and look to um, show how this issue has been navigated poorly. So in this first situation, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. On the surface, this looks good, right? Like, it, it looks fine. There's not many of you, but you can say, yes, it looks right. Hopefully, you can help me out. Uh, I mean, thou shalt not murder is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, so, so the Pharisees teaching uh, don't murder, uh, and a murder is a no-no. It seems kosher. It seems fine. Why would Jesus take issue with interpretation? And the answer is that the Pharisees had been teaching that as long as you refrain from committing the physical act of murder, that you have exhausted what the law was trying to tell you in how you should treat other people. Uh, Sam Storms, uh, an author that I, that I love, a pastor that, that is really helpful to me, he says this, they taught that as long as you didn't take another human life, that you have discharged your, your complete obligation to your fellow man. Step back for a moment with, with just common sense and think about that. It's like someone asked the question, what does righteousness towards other people look like? How would you sum up a righteous heart consuming other people around you and some dude from the back goes, just don't kill them. You're like, okay, that sounds good. This is what they're teaching. The bar of righteousness is don't rage kill people. Everything else is fine. They believe as long as not perform the outward act of murder, then the inward heart towards another person was, was really irrelevant. But again, like, 
we have to understand how weird this is. My son Judah, it would be like him saying, Dad, can I murder someone? No, son, that's not a great idea. Well, Dad, can I want to murder someone? Yeah, that's cool, as long as you don't do it. This is kind of what they were teaching. As long as you don't commit the physical act, really the rest doesn't matter. Now, now uh, Jesus used hyperbole, so, so we're kind of entering into that as well, but they're completely missing the heart posture towards other people and other things. Sam Storms, again, is helpful. He, he tries to kind of sum up Jesus' words to the Pharisees this way. Maybe this is a little bit more understandable. Um, he says this, You've, You have been led to believe that it is sufficient simply not to kill. You've been led to believe that your responsibility to others is fulfilled in the observance of the external law, letter of the law alone. But I say to you that the thoughts and the intent of your heart is no less important in the eyes of God. That's the helpful part. What goes on in your head is no less important. The entire point here is that our attitude is equally as important as our acts. That's hard because we have really bad attitudes sometimes. What goes on in you matters as much as what comes flying out of you in your actions. Here's also the second issue at hand. One that we miss in the translation, modern translation that we read. What we read in our Bibles, it looks like it says this. Uh, you shall not murder or you'll be liable to judgment. What the original language said is, is actually this. This is what the Pharisees were actually teaching. You shall not murder or you'll be liable to the court. Do you see the subtle difference here that Jesus has an issue with? The general feeling is don't murder because, uh, not because God will deal with you and he said not to. The sense isn't that murder is going to bring up an issue between you and God, but more so the problem with murder is you may go to court and you may get in trouble. The authorities may condemn you. They have boiled down the commandment of do not murder um, to don't do it really because you don't want to go to jail. This is what the religious authorities were teaching each other. Again, notice righteousness before God in relation to men and women. It had been so deluded that it now didn't involve your heart, but it also didn't involve God. Your heart doesn't matter. God doesn't matter. Just don't kill people because you don't want to get in trouble. Before we sit back and throw stones at the Pharisees again, though, because it's really easy to, to, to kind of degrade the way that other people do faith. It may be helpful to be honest about our own situation, and I'll tell about me, and you can be honest with yourself or not whether you relate to this, but I've had moments, days, where I've tried to walk out a righteous life while completely ignoring the inner workings of my heart as I did so. You done that? Where I assume that my heart is fine as long as my external behaviors aren't going like crazy and off the rails, I assume that my, my heart is fine. But in each and every situation when I do that, it leaves my heart in a really unhealthy spot and guess what? My actions are soon to follow. See, this text isn't meant to add more weight to your life. It's meant to help you with what we often kind of deny in our lives, that our heart can't be ignored. It has to be addressed. The Savior of the soul wants access to your heart because it's important. It is your core. But your, your behaviors are, are going to come out of what you let flow out of your heart. Verse 22, he says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is going to put three things here. 
Uh, everyone who insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Like he, he kind of brings it up a little bit. Before the letter of the law was adopted, just don't murder people because you might get in trouble. And now Jesus takes this, this truncated view of the command, and, and what does he do? He opens it up much wider. Notice Jesus also places a claim of, of authority over their lives and ours here. The opening said, you've heard it said, now it says, but I say to you. Jesus is declaring in this moment, it's not what other people say, it's what I say. That's really important for us because right now what a lot of people like to say, maybe what our hearts like to say is to follow Jesus to me means you don't get to do that. Yeah. Jesus tells you what following him looks like. Jesus is teaching us here, other voices never supersede my own. If, if someone takes a command of Jesus and says, yeah, but, and, and, and then does this, you can't do that. Jesus says, but I say to you. He's not cracking the whip or trying to hurt people. He's trying to say, no, no, I'm the one that you need to listen to. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever calls his brother moron is liable to counsel. And whoever calls his brother fool is liable to the hell of fire. As we hear this for exactly what it is without our kind of religious elitist ears on, I wonder whoever hears this and gulps with me. Anger, calling someone a fool or a moron. Before liability only came through murder, now it comes through anger or calling people those types of things. Guys, who hasn't done that? Who hasn't done that? If, if we look honestly at our hearts, see some of us believe that like anger should be a category on the strength finders test. Because you're like, I would nail that category. And other people, I, I thought about my, my grandpa uh, this week, my, my mom's father, who, who's passed away. Uh, other people kind of think of this situation when it comes to morons and fools like this. This is what my grandpa used to say. Well, if it looks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. Right? So we think calling a, a person a moron, it's like, I'm just a straight shooter. It is what it is. Uh, you, you know, I'm just being honest. I, I'm just truthful. And yet Jesus says something else, something completely different about our honesty. Before we make more rules in our minds to try and deal with these words from Jesus, as if before there was just one rule, don't murder, and then we add, or be angry, or say moron, or say fool, we need to begin to see the spirit of the law, not the letter. Before righteousness was the only, or unrighteousness, the only risk of becoming unrighteous was really murdering a person. Uh, but now understanding that unrighteousness can be something that comes about, through what would manifest itself in our heart and, and what we say to people. Or, or maybe, if we're not brave, what we say about people when, we're not, when they're not there. See, our Lord and Savior isn't trying to give you more rules to obey in this text, though. Instead, he's trying to, to, to transform your whole self instead of just one external behavior. It might be helpful to understand a couple terms in this text. Uh, again, the... The Old and the New Testament were written in English, so some words just don't land right. But when Jesus refers to anger here, in the Greek there's two words for anger. The first is, is, is thumos. It, it, it's a quick outburst of temper. It's, it, it's that oh, anger that skyrockets, and then, and then you're like, and you settle it right down, right? That, that, that initial jolt. Uh, and then the, the other form is, is orge. This is a deep-seated 
animosity that seethes towards someone. Uh, this is long-lived anger. This is anger that you clutch a hold of and you purposely will not let go. This is anger that you want to simmer. It's the kind of anger that starts as like this little thing, uh, but then it turns into a raging fire inside of you. This is anger that you literally devote time, attention, and energy to nursing it and keeping it alive. That type of anger. Uh, this type of anger is where resentment and bitterness come from, by the way. This second anger, this long-lasting uh, anger that you feed, that you pet, that you keep a hold of, this is the anger that Jesus is talking about. It's true. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. This is not a condemnation of all anger. Jesus was angry uh, at times. The word tells us that two people flipping over tables and chased people with whips. He got angry, but his anger was about injustice. It wasn't indignation because, because his ego took a hit. The other words that need defining, and these ones are a little bit more difficult. The, the, the second and the third example that, that many translations translate into moron or fool there's no English word that even comes close to trying to, to fit these. The best way that we can describe them, though, is the, the first one, calling someone a moron, would be kind of like calling them an idiot. It's, it's bashing someone's mental faculties. You're weak in the head, right? That, that's, that's the first one. The second word, it takes that up a notch, and it's not only attacking someone's wit, it's, it's attacking their moral substance, and their worth. So if the, if the first one is calling someone an idiot, the second one is calling someone you're worthless and you're an idiot. It, it, it's literally telling another soul that they have no value. Effectively, Jesus says, we are unrighteous and not following him. When we murder, this was established, the Pharisees have this one nailed. When we hold this long-seated anger in our heart, or when we unload that anger, by degrading people with our words and making value judgments of their worth and substance. This is Jesus' point. We can have more problems with each other than just physically killing each other. How we treat each other, what we think of each other, what we say to each other. There's a whole area of righteousness involved there as well. Internally, we may ask, okay, what's the big deal with all of this? Right? Why is anger such a big deal? If I hold it in, why is it such a big deal? To answer that question, I'll just ask a question in return. Where do your actions come from? How does a person get to the point where they'll kill another human being? Does that process not start in the heart? Rhetorical, it starts in the heart. Actions are never a foreign body. When we watch the media in their lame apologies, that wasn't me. They act like some foreign body took over them and made them do it. That's not what happens. No, no foreign thing slams into us and makes us do something that wasn't already in our heart. Our actions are a natural outworking of what is happening inside of us already. In gospel fluency language, some of our missional communities love this type of wording. Our actions are the fruit that comes from the root of our heart. The action, if it's messed up, you got to look at the root. What's going on in there? What's causing that, 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 that action to go sideways? Well, something's marinating inside of you that's not helpful. For this reason, taking a hold of what we let simmer in our head and our heart is really, really important. 
And it's going to be critical to controlling what we do as we live. That's a pragmatic way to look at things, but there's more than that. Remember the salt and light texts? The way we operate in the world around us is important. The calling upon Christ over our lives is more than just don't kill people. Um, in the Old Testament, and also Jesus teaches about and uses this core tenet in his New Testament teaching, all over the Bible, there's this core idea called the Shema. It's a rule of life that embodies what our faith looks like. And the concept is this. When somebody asks, what does Christianity look like? This is a great way to say it. You love God with everything in you, and you love your neighbor as yourself. This is what faith looks like. Yes, there's more involved and, uh, and who's paying for your sin and, and all of that. But, but at the core, loving God and loving other people is central to what our faith in following Jesus looks like. To wage war in your mind against someone, harboring this deep-seated kind of rage towards them inside of you. It's the antithesis of loving someone else as yourself. It's incompatible. It doesn't work. And to wound someone with words instead of a weapon is still to do violence to a soul made in the image of God. Just think about it for a second, because we're callous with our words. The Bible actually says no careless word will be like forgotten. Where do you mentally have to go to look at another human being and go, you're literally worthless? Something's happening in there to do that. And that something happening is definitely not loving them like you love yourself. What I think we also find when we examine this situation closely is this. In order to pick up anger, long-seated anger, and a mindset that lets us degrade someone with our words, um, that's only possible when we forget about or put aside the love and grace and mercy that God has had for us in the moment. How do you hold rage in your heart given such grace and mercy from God? What do I mean by that? It's not a gospel lens that you and I look through when we rage against someone else. And it's not a gospel lens that we look through when we call another human being worthless. Even if we feel judgment for doing something, this means that, that um, active choice to harbor anger or use destructive words is a choice in the moment that says, you know what, I don't care about the gospel right now. This is what I want to do. I don't care that Jesus set his anger aside for me when I was, when, when I was acting out against him. I deserve this. I, I deserve to be angry. I, I don't care that Jesus didn't call me as he saw me. Uh, when I was at my worst, I'm going to say this about them. I don't care that Jesus calls me beloved, cherished, adopted, and sealed. They're worthless. See, the, the only way that you can get there is by forgetting about and living through a different lens besides the gospel. In this, in this, we have to see all of life as a choice. It's a choice of what will you align your life with. Do we align ourselves with the Son of Man, this is Jesus, by fighting against our anger and the emotions in our heart? Do we align ourselves with the gentle and lowly Savior who is kind in speech? Do we align ourselves with the, with the Savior by denying our flesh, even when our flesh says, like, let him have it? Or do we align ourselves with the world, with the, what the Bible calls the way of Adam? Do we feed our anger? Do we freely use speech to tear people down? Jesus shows us the choice is yours. Do you follow him or reject him? Remember, Christianity is following Christ. 
If your consistent pattern is to hold anger and hurl death in words, you're not following it. Now, of course there's going to be times we slip up. Those are moments, though, to repent and believe. Learn and grow. Right When you rage out against someone or, or something that you know that you shouldn't have, that's a great time to, the whole life of, of our faith is repenting and believe, coming to Jesus and going, man, I didn't do that well. I didn't follow you. I didn't remember what you've done for me well in there. Will, will you help my anger because I can't get rid of it? Will you help my mouth because I can't control it? It's not a matter to all of a sudden think, oh, well, God hates me. It's a matter to move towards God and say, man, I messed that one up. Will you help me? Verses 23 and 24, well, I guess 23 through 26. They say this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Okay, there's one example, right? Because he's wanting to give us living examples of how to deal with this. Then in 25 through 26, we see another one. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's a second example. These verses hold examples of anger in the heart and ways that we could deal with it. There, there have been many who try and analyze these specific examples, and, and they're hoping to like unlock some hidden parable or story or this special thing. Like, you're working too hard. I don't think that's what you need to do here. These are two cases where Jesus is trying to help us that, that are probably cases that we will understand quite easily. The first says, if a brother has something against you, right, that this could be, you're angry with them and they know it, or they're angry with you and you know it. You've you got tension. You have a beef. You have a problem with, with another believer, right? This is in the church, another believer around you. Instead of moving forward with your practice of faith, it says giving an offering. What Jesus is saying is if there's a problem between you and someone else, instead of being religious and moving forward with your, your duty, immediately stop and deal with the situation at hand with your brother. His point is this, being reconciled isn't a side issue that's less important to your faith. Fighting against anger and being reconciled to the brothers and sisters around us is a key part of our faith. Again, what does that mean? It's telling you don't punt at squashing anger. Don't let it simmer. Right? That anger that could be the quick up and down, don't, 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 let, it, don't let it last into that long-seated anger. Deal with, with anger. Deal with it immediately. Then come with your gift. That follows the religious duty while ignoring the heart is the heart of a Pharisee. Which is this. The, the heart that says, I really don't care what's going on here. I'll just do a couple things and pretend God has to love me because of it. Jesus is just warning, you don't do that. What goes on in your heart is, is, is a key thing that plays out in what you do with your faith. The second example is much the same, but, but it's a little bit twisted in a different way. The point is deal with anger and issues immediately, because if you don't, there's a decent chance they're going to come back and hurt you. Right? The first is relationally with other people. Uh, in the body, deal with your anger. This other one is, is other people around. If you can squash the anger, squash it because it's going to crush you later if you're not careful. 
Crush anger and division now before it crushes you or your community. Just two different ways. We're really good at letting anger and bitterness, and they know they did this. They better come to me. Maturity looks like go to them. Don't let anger sit. Remember how Jesus moved towards you in love, moved towards other people in that same way. Follow Christ. That's how he's dealt with you, with other people. And we don't let divisions last. Things actually end up better. Again, pointing back to flourishing at the front side of his sermon. As we wind down, Jesus is imploring us to be careful to not follow so closely a couple external rules that we end up ignoring our heart. The point is not that rules don't matter. It's just that rules don't meet your heart. I want to spend a moment maybe encouraging us for a second because here's the reality. We've all held anger in our hearts. We've let it fester. We've let it linger. In our mind, we've gone, well, they, they deserve it. Uh, you, we all pet anger. We've all felt justified in waging war against someone else in our mind and our heart. We have all harbored resentment and bitterness and rage at some point. And further, we've all used words to wound people. We've treated someone as, as less than valuable in our speech. So, so there's no person who, who sits before this example of Jesus and goes, I'm clean. I don't struggle with that. You and I all do. I'm gladly roping you in whether you want it or not. What does that mean? It means we all stand condemned in front of these words. But hear the good news of the gospel to this. Though you and I have failed in this spot, one, there's opportunity to grow. But hear this, Jesus came to earth and allowed himself to be murdered to make a way for redemption for people like you and me with murderous thoughts in our hearts. The Savior of the world took the anger of the world upon himself to pay the price for our anger against our fellow man. Christ, before his death, on the cross, his last words, he breathed out some of his last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hear the good news of the gospel. If your faith is in Jesus, that covers even your murderous language. The good news of the gospel, see, what, we, what normally happens is sin makes us run away from God thinking, he hates me. But there's no anger that Christ didn't pay for on the cross. There's no careless words that a stripes can't forgive. For all who put their trust in him and follow him. See, how do you know if your trust is in him if you're going, Jesus, help me with that? How, how do you know if you wrongly understand grace? You go, I don't care about anger because he's going to forgive me. That's a, probably a good clue that you actually don't know Jesus. But understanding he still loves me in spite of that, and I'll try and follow him next time, that, that's a different deal. See, this is the beauty of grace and mercy. It's not at all that our sins don't matter. It's that Jesus gives kindness even to sinners like us. And, and then what does he do? He whispers gently in our ear, now follow me, child of God. He doesn't whisper, I'm going to kick you out if you do it again. He says, here's grace and mercy now. Now follow me. What, what did he say in the Gospels? As he moved towards other people in kindness, I love you, now go and sin no more. See, his kindness towards us directs us and gives us margin when we fall on our face. But then it helps us with more than just our actions. It helps our entire being, heart, and all be transformed by his kindness. As we close today, Garrett, you can roll back up. I don't know where you land on your anger, those here and 
majority of you who are uh, um, I don't know where you land on your anger and your words but I pray that you hear Jesus invite you to trust him more with those things and align with him more even when when you're when your flesh tries to pull you towards anger. Maybe you haven't got that far in the process and you're still trying to figure out what you make of Jesus. If that's you, I just I would ask you to remember the core of the gospel. God sent Jesus for sinners, of, of which we all qualify. And Jesus paid the price for the sin of all who believe in him. So if you're still trying to figure out Jesus, my hope is this. Maybe you don't try and understand him anymore, and then you just submit and follow him. Believe in him. Let, let him be your savior. And watch as his grace and his kindness makes you brand new in him. You can put down all of your heavy efforts to make yourself acceptable and understand the only one who is truly acceptable died for you and then welcomes you into the family of God. I, mean, I pray all of us would, would, would submit to that, and those of us who are in the family of God, that we would rejoice in that. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says this. The, the communion little one, one-off containers are out front. If you didn't grab one, all are able to take. If your faith is in Jesus, we'd welcome you too. But Jesus said this on the night when, when he died. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night... Uh, when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we take communion every week? Because to our hearts that fall short, to our lives that, 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 that end up always remembering well uh, at different times. When we take, we're remembering through, through the, the bread and the drink. We're remembering even if I've slipped up or I've done well, there's still a sacrifice. God still Jesus for me. Jesus loves me and has not kicked me out. So when you take, even if your week has been a hot mess, you're remembering Jesus still died. He died for me. And he knew what he was buying when he did. So my hope is that your heart would be encouraged in that as you take. Jesus is kind and he is merciful. You stand with me and we'll end up closing with a couple songs. At any point in those songs, feel free uh, to take the communion. God, I pray that you are with us today. Lord, we just freely, uh, we come to you and honestly say we need your help. This is hard and this is heavy. You have brought together a family and a community, and most of us aren't even with each other today. So we we ask you, would you draw near to us? Those of us here and those of us at home, we pray for your encouragement. We pray for your peace. I pray for the hearts that are out of control with worry and anxiety, that, that our hearts would understand that, that, that you're not petrified that you're still king, that you still reign over our lives, that you're still good. Lord, I pray that you draw near. In light of the sermon, I pray that our hearts are open to hear. I pray that you work even in the hard corner that we normally try and keep you away from. Lord, work in my anger. Work in all our anger. Lord, I pray that we trust you more. 
that we see the beauty of how kind you are and gentle you are to us. And that as that transforms us, that would be the marker of how we are to other people as well. Lord, we're thankful that you forgive us when we fall short. But I pray that you help us, Lord, to trust you more and more in those areas. Be glorified in what we're doing today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you draw near as we worship you. That we may feel the goodness of the Savior and the loving Father.